Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, and thank you for joining me. I'm Erika Moretti. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Modern Languages and Culture at the Fashion Institute of Technology. I'm here with Dr. Eden McLean, an associate professor of history at Auburn University. And we will be discussing her work, Mussolini's Children, Race and Elementary Education in Fascist Italy, which came out in 2018 with the University of Nebraska Press. McLean's book analyzes the evolution of racism in fascist Italy through the lens of state-mandated youth culture. With the goal of rejuvenating the Italian race, the fascist government attempted to mold its youngest citizen to constitute a second Roman empire. It's very much of a treat for me to be able to speak to another Eastern of education uh, and an Eastern of childhood as well. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation that we're gonna be having today. So thank you, Eden, for being here. Well, thank you for um, being willing to chat with me about my work. Of course. So I would like to start out by talking a little bit about what is the inspiration for your book? Tell us a little bit about the intellectual journey, the inspiration that led you to write it. Sure, yeah, thank you uh, for that. I, so I'm going to try not to be too much of a historian and back up too far, which is my want, but, uh, but there are a few threads that really sort of interweave to make this book happen or made this book happen. Um, and the first is the reason why I do modern Italian history in the first place, which is uh, generally speaking, because I, as I started exploring modern Italian history, I was struck by the fact that Americans often do not engage with modern Italian history when, when uh, discussing uh, 20th century history. And particularly Italy's ongoing sort of grappling with fascism has been, uh, and the American sort of lack of information about Italian fascism um, has always struck me as, as really interesting. Um, because Italy to me was at sort of the center of intellectual, social and cultural movements and crises uh, at for the first half of the 20th century, I mean, throughout the 20th century, but especially the, the first half of the 20th century in, in my, um, as regards my interests. And, um, and instead Americans often tend to compare Italy with Germany or Britain or France or, or whatever else, instead of uh, exploring it on its own. And, and yet what I sort of want to emphasize is that I think modern Italy um, needs to, we can't understand any of these conversations or national contexts without also understanding the transnational conversations they were involved in. And more pointedly, I don't think we can really understand uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany without understanding Mussolini and, and uh, fascist Italy. So that's my sort of first, the first broadest thread. And then more specifically, I've been struck by the, the really stark and often strident claim that racism played no 
or very little inherent role in Italian fascism, um, or at least not until Mussolini started dealing with Hitler. And I found this claim um, coming from you know, lay people as well as historians, particularly curious considering Mussolini's own rhetoric um, and policies regarding so-called non-Italian uh, people um, from his earliest days in power. Um, and that's not to say that there has ever been any doubt that there were individual racists within the fascist regime, but, um, but I wanted to try and figure out what, if any part, ideas of race and racism played um, sort of more at the heart of, of Italian fascism. Um, and so um, what I really wanted to do was think about sort of what the nature of the fascist project was, what were its goals and, and um, what were the ways in which the regime hoped to reach those goals. And uh, I became especially, um, so that's another thread. And then as I started exploring this, this question of what role race racism actually played in, in the fascist regime, um, as I'm looking in the archives, I, I began to recognize that one of the most critical tools that the fascist regime used to disseminate its messages was the education system. And in particularly um, the elementary education system and sort of the, the organizations, institutions associated with it. Um, because children were required to attend school until the age of 14 um, and they were a captive audience and they were also considered sort of malleable as their brains, their bodies were considered malleable, supposedly making them excellent sort of vessels for the ideals of the fascist state. Um, and moreover, from my perspective, the education system um, was was an excellent lens with which to interrogate fascist beliefs because the lessons had to be stripped down to its barest bones um, and and the most easily uh, understandable and digestible for their for their young audience. So those were sort of the three main threads that that really brought me to the book. That's great. Uh, thank you. Um, I have a, a quick question regarding your second thread. I mean, what is the extent of the denial of, uh, you know, Italian scholars and Italian intelligentsia mm -hmm. with regard to the issue of, uh, you know, the Mussolini, Mussolini being uh, racist or not, or Italians having been racist or not during the fascist mm -hmm. regime? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a... <sighs> It's a good question and it's not an easy one to, to answer. Um, one, because more and more there are scholars coming out with really valuable and rich studies of, um, of anti-Semitism, of uh, under fascism, of fascist imperialism, of um, the influence of Italian fascism and fascist imperialism on Nazi Germany, right? So there are, it is becoming a much richer field. Right. More often where I find the real pushback is uh, one among um, Italians I just meet who are not scholars, but also among Italians who, and scholars who argue that still, Fat, uh, sort of the fascists were nationalists, but they weren't actually racists. Right. Or they, or even if they can agree that racism existed under fascism, it wasn't essential to the fascist project, or that, um, 
that they came to it late in the game or they have a very hard time grappling as I've gotten a lot of pushback, I should say, on determining that this is a more generic racism. Right. And your book starts with, with one of those pushback. It's, it's a mm-hmm. really great way to sort of like enter the topic. I, I found it like a very convincing hook to sort of like start reading and seeing, you know, how is this topic now debated in Italy nowadays? So thank you. Um, I want to continue by talking about uh, what kind of, what do you think kind of contribution your book makes into sort of a larger context? We've talked a little bit, we've contextualized your work within this sort of like Italian study panorama. Uh, what is the larger contribution that it makes? Yeah, well, one of the things that I really aimed to do with this book is to bring Italy and the, the sort of the case study of fascist Italy into these larger conversations so that it is um, just as much about the fascist experience or the fascist ideology as it is about these ideas, these concepts more generically. So in other words, um, it forces, I think, think my book really forces us to engage with the often intersecting concepts of race and nation and gender and ethnicity in the modern Italian context. Um, These are, you know, scholars more and more are talking about these intersecting whatever fields of identification, um, especially in imperialist and American contexts. And I want to sort of push a little bit harder and talk about it as more more in a more transnational uh, way, which is not to say that there aren't very real particularities for the various contexts. Um, But also along those lines, it really argues that there was a much more insidious form of racism that was a pillar of Italian fascism. And it was one that evolved over time and, um, and that sort of primarily focused on cultural, linguistic, spiritual aspects or you know, so-called affective um, aspects of Italian identity, but that, they, that these were the, the characteristics that sort of, um, signaled national superiority um, and racial superiority. Um, And why I argue that it is racial is because the argument was that this Italian identity, this Italianita was inherited, right? It wasn't just um, innate sort of, or it wasn't just, didn't come with citizenship. It came with being of the land and, um, and it wasn't, related just to the geographical contours of the nation state. Um, and that is the essence of any racial ideology, right? The innateness, this, this inherited uh, quality. And I think the other part that's, in, that's powerful is, is the fact that it evolved over time. I mean, scholars are fairly comfortable at this point with the idea that race and racism is a construct. But then when it comes to specific contexts, um, it becomes really uncomfortable for them when seeing the ideas actually malleable and flexible and uh, people being hypocritical <laughs> about it. And the fascist regime is, is uh, no different um, because race and racism are necessarily vague so that power brokers can can um, manipulate them for their own ends. 
Um, and so that, the, that I point out this, these facts in a supposedly totalitarian context, I think is, is poignant um, and, and for historians who abstractly know about these, these ideas um, head on. And then finally, I think, you know, it, it highlights how important children have become to the development of the modern nation state, um, not simply because they provide labor for future state projects, but because they're impressionable and they're able to be formed into whatever type of community members the state wishes to create. Um, that, you know, the reality is much different than it is in, in theory, right? Uh, but the Bush book pushes us to think about education as a tool of state building. Absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned the fact that, you know, on the one hand, you have the fact that Italian history is overlooked in the United States, that maybe being mm -hmm. a, an issue linked to publishing houses or, you know, Italy not playing an important role within continental Europe. When you also, I mean, what we can say is also probably that the history of childhood is, uh, is a field that it's growing, but it's also sort of a, a not a, a priority uh, or like sort of at the forefront of the of historical research nowadays in the United States. So my question is to do with, uh, uh, with what kind of challenges did you encounter in conducting your research on two subfields that or two fields mm -hmm. that are not considered to be uh, of primary importance that we know that they are, but you know, one of them is becoming, but you know, not considered as such. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, there are several answers to that question, but I know I've been wordy, so I will try and uh, keep things shorter. Um, it's true. I, you know, when I started out with uh, focusing on children um, as sort of the audience for fa of fascism and fascist policies, um, I, it wasn't hugely popular. Um, as as sort of a lens. And I, I do remember at one conference um, in Italy, I was trying to chat with a colleague afterwards and he uh, said he really, you know, had nothing to say about my paper because he was, he didn't deal with cultural history. And I was just sort of shocked because I, I am certainly talking about culture, but I'm very much talking about, a, you know, in a lot of ways, old school political history that children are fundamental <laughs> to modern politics and modern state building. Um, so one of it is just yelling, you know, children might not have the vote, but they are <laughs> uh, critical to, to um, our political situation. Um, and, and then an another thing is, is sort of, I do get also get pushback from uh, students and, and colleagues who argue, um, wonder why I study a second rate dictatorship, <laughs> as, <laughs> which um, has, been the subject of many uh, talks now, um, but it's, I didn't realize we were rating dictatorships um, as first or second rate, but so part of it is that I have, I have frequently felt like I have to justify the, my, my selections, but in, in terms of the, the archives and doing the research, um, I think my greatest challenge has been really grappling with the, with the tension between fascist racism in theory, practice, and then reception, um, and trying to 
recognize that the three of those three categories are not the same thing and how I can go about um, honoring the spirit of my project without confusing those three categories. Right. Um, I think it would be useful at this point, like if you could give us an example of one of your sources, I think it'd be easier to understand the kind of uh, challenges that you might have faced in Italian archives and North American archives, because you've conducted research even in the United States, mm -hmm. and in better understanding the notion of racism in Italy during fascism. Could you give us an example? Absolutely. Yeah. So most of my sources, um, ended up being textbooks and then pedagogical journals. Um, and, um, and then to a lesser extent, uh, children's journals, school notebooks, and, um, and then of course the, the laws. Um, but the, the textbooks and the pedagogical journals are, were my favorite um, sources because they really got me to sort of see how they were imagining their their lessons and ideas in practice and at first light one of the challenges is that in certain circumstances these sources are just you know patriotic right that italy um is you know the the fatherland who will bring you know honor to children and that they need to um, you know, honor their forefathers. But then, you know, when they talk about sort of the Roman Empire as being the father of all civilization and that the, that fascism is the, um, and that it is the progenitor of Italians today and that it is running through in the blood of children and that fascism is the natural inheritor, um, it, you start to get a sense for some of the more racialized aspects of history and, and culture uh, for the, the Italian fascist regime. Um, and then you see echoes of it in ways that they have children, you know, hope, I, they could be made up, but children writing in um, to articles and newspapers about uh, their patriotism and um, excitement about going in and conquering Ethiopia and civilizing uh, the Ethiopians and also proving their cultural and racial superiority to Africans and other Europeans alike. Right, right. Um, um, there's a um, the conversation right now in the history of childhood field that's very much geared towards the notion of agency. And, you know, I'm thinking mm -hmm. of your textbook and your notebooks that you're looking at as your primary sources. I'm wondering if you have any, you know, sort of like traces left behind by children that can you know, sort of give us a sense of uh, some sort of agency. I mean, I'm not mm -hmm. thinking about a pushback <laughs> on an elementary school child, but uh, I mean, did you, are you engaging with the notion of agency in, uh, uh, in your book, uh, uh, in your research? I mean, if I'm perfectly honest, I don't really deal with um, the question of agency from the children's perspective because for a variety of reasons, but primarily because I'm interested in um, the goals of the fascist state. And as regards the fascist state, they didn't think of 
children as agents in and of their own rights, but as vessels who and sort of puppets who could be molded into whatever form the state wanted. Of course, we see pushback and we see agency on the part of children and their parents um, in the fact that the fascist state had to constantly revise their policies and, and laws and that their Mussolini was consistently frustrated by the lack of um, sort of Italianization um, uh, within and sort of nationalizing, creating national unity among all, all Italians, right? So we do see echoes of this. Um, and, um, and we see echoes in, in memoirs from children. Of course, memoirs are complicated because they come after the fact. So, right. um, so it's a huge gap in my work in, in a certain way. Um, I think of that as a, as a separate project and um, an equally, if not, you know, an equally and if not more powerful study, but one that requires a different set of questions and, and, and sources. You mentioned, we talked a little bit of, about this, but I was wondering if you could delve a little bit more into uh, sort of a parallel historical phenomena in other mm -hmm. countries. Uh, I mean, what, what your book is in dialogue with, uh, uh, with other texts mm -hmm. that different countries. Could you give us a little bit of an overview just to draw some connections? Yeah, sure. So if we look at, um, you know, where I sort of um, diverge from a lot of a lot of texts is that I am merging sort of both the sort of a, a study of racism in fascist Italy with a history of education and and youth culture. Um, and so there are lots of studies of, and gr a growing number of studies of children and youth culture as this organization is, um, is familiar with um, in the United States and in Britain, right? Especially the, the physical uh, education movements, the, the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. Um, and, um, and of course, so there's that. Then there's also the eugenics movement that has gained increasing amounts of, of popularity in, uh, within sort of scholarship um, in the United States and Britain and France and of course Germany, right? And then, you know, Nazi Germany is the, I don't know, um, the Ur narrative <laughs> of you know, 20th century racism. Um, and, and so I, I very much am in conversation and um, trying to um, argue that you cannot engage in a conversation or discussion of Nazi German racism without also including the context of fascist uh, racism, um, not just because um, Hitler very much looked to Mussolini for precedent and failure, <laughs> um, but also because Italian scientists um, and pedagogues were very much at the front lines of elementary pedagogy, physical education, eugenics, and criminal anthropology. Right, right, right. right. Great, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I'm thinking about what do you think remains unknown uh, when it comes to your research, what future research in this area is needed? I think that a lot can be done um, with reception and so-called success of the sort of racial campaign, the, the, the fascist racial project among children. Um, because it's, you know, often the pushback is, okay, so these were their ideas, but how successful was it? You know, the Italian uh, military was not very successful in World War II, which anyway, that's a longer conversation, but I, um, and so I think a much more in-depth discussion and, and an examination of the reception of the, the, um, this, these policies and this campaign in practice is warranted. Um, the challenge, of course, is that every teacher has some bit of autonomy, um, agency, even in the fascist, under the fascist state. And so to get any kind of, make any broader argument, you have to look at so very many um, sources and, and that of course um, still can't make a broader argument beyond the sources you look at is sort of what, um, what I would argue. But I also think more needs to be done on the defascistization process um, of the education system uh, post 1945. And there's been a little bit of work done, but, um, and I know there are graduate students now working on, on these sorts of projects, but I think that, um, uh, that is also really important. And also sort of the extent in, uh, to which these policies were, were born out in, um, in colonial education programs in, in Africa and then the, the Dodecanese islands. Is that where your research is directed? Your future research? <laughs> no, actually. Well, not, well, not at this point. Um, who knows what, what's down the line. Right now I am focused actually on a project that deals with reception and success much more directly, um, but in, in a different, supposed colonies, some people have called it, which is um, South Tyrol um, uh, in Italy's sort of northernmost uh, province and, um, and the fascist state's Italianization campaign there, particularly within the school system um, and how there was pushback and, and how success, so-called successful the, the project was there. It sounds fascinating. I think so. <laughs> um, when I was rereading your book, uh, I was actually in Italy. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it's funny because uh, a new scandal popped up and it was about how you know, many authors of Italian textbooks struggled with representing diversity, with uh, sort of uh, giving an idea of the new Italy with multiculturalism, uh, that it's something to be accounted for within the actual book. So as I was trying to draw connection with the you know, current repercussion of uh, and, you know, what you discuss in your book in contemporary Italy, you know, I was, you know, I'm wondering if whether you can expand on uh, uh, whether your book actually deals with phenomena like this one, mm -hmm. uh, whether your research can actually inform, uh, you know, the conversation on uh, contemporary textbook, not just in Italy, but, you know, everywhere in North America, especially. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the textbook situation is, is, um, 
a challenge in Italy and everywhere. Um, and I think that textbooks are an especially powerful lens with which to view a society's values, priorities, because um, they, I, so I worked for a, a textbook publisher for a couple of years before going to graduate school. And so I saw firsthand how much politics really play into deciding what types of information are considered valuable enough to go into textbooks. And this is particularly true in, again, in elementary school textbooks where, um, you know, the audience is seen as particularly vulnerable and also things need to be simple, right? So um, there's this, you got to be simple, but you also have to be straightforward and fairly generalizable. Um, and, um, and the concerning thing is also that, of course, these textbooks are, need to be um, supported by parents and school boards, right? Depending on the, the, the context, but that's fairly standard across the board. Um, and even in regimes like fascist Italy or other sort of more top-down um, systems of government, they still rely on some popular support, right? So what we can see in these, these sort of stories that we find within the textbooks is, um, perspectives that are considered rather um, unobjectionable by a majority of, of, of the readership and um, particularly saleable, right? So, of course, it's like, it, it's also um, a chicken or egg effect, right? You also need to have sort of interpretations that are more inclusive or more aware of the diversity of human experience um, in order for parents and school boards to understand that, you know, the narrative needs to be changed. Um, so I think, I think being aware of, of how the process is, um, sort of takes effect and what sort of how history plays a part and politics pay, play a part in that process um, is, is critical. And I think, you know, certainly plays a part in the fights that I will be um, waging in my uh, adopted state of Alabama and um, already from friends here about certain uh, things in textbooks that my fourth grade daughter will have to deal with uh, about Alabama history. Thank you so much, Eden, for talking with us today and for presenting your current and past research. I would also like to thank the Society for the History of Children and Youth for hosting us the presentation and uh, everybody who listened to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online shcy.org.